Well, welcome to the Precious Snowflakes podcast. This is podcast number three. I'm Lelius Rose. I'm Benjamin Phelps. And uh, Chris is here, but is not uh, mic'd up this time. As So I guess we are our own host. We will be more or less self-guided for this go-around. We've actually been talking for about 20 minutes. We just haven't bothered to record it. So we've already we've said everything up. interesting that... We've already kind of discussed it all, haven't we? Yeah, this is really the outtakes cast. Yes. We just we just turn on a recorder at a, at a random moment and... Yeah, and, and what you and what you hear is just what it happens to get. Right, but for those of you who are saying to yourselves, "Well, that's what I listened to already twice," uh, we do have two <laughs> subjects this week, uh, two mildly different subjects. One is the Dutch election, uh, and Gert Wilders and uh, Mark Rutte, and the other is Get Out and the sort of the experience of white people watching Get Out and the response to white people seeing Get Out. If you're not familiar with Get Out, it is the new film written and directed by Jordan Peele of the comedy duo Key and Peele. Uh, and let us... I think we should start with that one because Lel is really on a roll about it. It's it's kind of... I haven't actually seen it yet. I mean, I've I've seen, you know, trailers and clips from it. And I've I've seen and listened to a lot of interviews there and people talking. So I, I have a fairly good... I don't want you to spoil the ending for me or anything. But it is basically kind of a modern day, you know, horror... Sort of a, a, a satire horror on of uh, in the vein of some of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Yeah, so I I have seen it. My whole family, we went and saw it together. Uh, And here's what I can say about it. And this is going to be... Well, first of all, go see it. If you haven't seen Get Out already, people who are listening to this, go see it. It's worth the money. Uh, Jordan Peele has more than earned it. And if Uh, you don't see it, you're racist. It's not seeing it is an act of racism. uh, It's It's oppressive. (laughs) Maybe not racist, but it's definitely oppressive. Not so, to see it. so th- but but you have to watch it the right way. Oh yes. So so the thing I was about to say is, um, and this may be a little controversial. It's not. It's not really the world's greatest, most groundbreakingest film. Is it scary? It's modestly scary. Is it, and it monsters? And it it does. I well, uh, uh, it's it's here's what it is. It's a plot that is sort of, that feels like a a cobbled together string of plots from previous movies, some of them good, some of them not good. What what Jordan Peele really brings to the table in Get Out is sort of a fresh lens, a fresh perspective. The fact that it is sort of a satire of the white liberal perspective in a way that I think Jordan Peele is uniquely qualified to express so it's about a a white woman who introduces her black boyfriend to her family right yeah then things go a little south okay um and as as a number of articles have noted uh you start the movie more or less seeing things from the white girlfriend's perspective but by the end of the movie you are clearly in it with our black hero well one of the things i you hear like the way they at the beginning of the movie when she set, you know, she and her boyfriend, you know, she's taking, she's introducing her new boyfriend to her that she's been dating for a couple of months to her family. And, you know, as a way of reassuring him at one point, 
I, I believe she says, oh, don't worry. They they voted for Obama like twice. They're totally not racist. So this is a line. You don't that, have anything to worry about. This doesn't spoil anything. <laughs> this is a line that actually comes up twice. Okay. So first she says, you know, if my parents could have voted for Obama a third time, they totally would have. Mm-hmm. And then later in the movie, you know. Because that proves you're not racist uh, if you yeah, voted could, for Obama, right? Right. Later in the movie, uh, Kaluuya's character, the protagonist, is with Bradley Whitford's character. Bradley Whitford says, you know, if I could have voted for Obama a third time, I would have. It's a nice it's a nice callback joke. I think a lot of people would have, but that's beside the point. Given the Yeah, that's beside the point. Um, but I was, yeah, it's really... It is, from a plot perspective, it doesn't do anything surprising, really. Uh, but... It's incredibly well executed. It has great dialogue, great performances, uh, a really good artistic eye. I well, think, a, but that's but that's not why you want to go but see it, right? I mean, that's why I wanted to go see okay. it. I saw the trailers and I thought it looked awesome. Okay, but I mean, the the social aspect. Why is it an important film? Right, it's an important film because it ex- because it is exposing, you know, white liberalism. As being secretly racist. Well, for, and from a and from a black person's perspective. Right, it's from a black person's perspective, and there is, yeah, I don't want to say much without spoiling, but I will just say, I do think that it is a good movie for all sorts of people to go and see. Uh, people are going to see themselves in it in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing about white, you know, quote unquote liberals in general is. A lot of us tend to think of ourselves as kind of "quote unquote" woke, not racist. We we think we always point to our you know our black friends, you know the the people we and but we don't really get an opportunity to see ourselves the way that non-white people see us, and that's what I think is 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 what makes it really interesting is the way it. Essentially, it's more. It's made by a black guy <laughs> from a black person's perspective, but in a way, it's 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 kind of made almost for the well, liberal white person as a way of as a way of expo- as a, as a way of you know shining the mirror back on themselves. You and know, that's why I think in in a lot of ways this is you know there there was an article I I, I read today early, earlier by a person of color who from their perspective and they were actually kind of bothered by the fact that they saw white people laughing at it it actually upset them <laughs> the this this lady that the white people were laughing at what she considered something that was very unfunny you know one of the things that i have really liked about both key and peel respectively for a long time is the fact that i think they have a really interesting unique perspective on race and race relations and that comes from the fact that both of them are, you know, men of color who have a white parent mm-hmm. and who have existed in both worlds and sort of seen both sides, you know, in so much as anyone can exist in the world. Sure. Of well, they have white family white. that are of, they're both right. white and black. Yeah. And that definitely has a unique perspective. <laughs> and a lot of that really comes through in the movie. But yeah, so this... Uh, a lot has been written about, you know, how white people shouldn't be laughing at Get Out because it's not funny. <laughs> it's a horror comedy. It's definitely funny. It's supposed to be funny. Well, and what's the whole idea is if something is funny, why shouldn't you laugh? I mean, we're not talking about laughing at, you know, like 
like the Holocaust or, you know, even though, I mean, I suppose there's a way, I suppose it's possible to make the Holocaust funny, but it's not like you're laughing at, I remember when, when Schindler's List was out there where you'd hear these, you know, incidents on the news of like, there would be like a group of like middle school kids who would go to see Schindler's List and someone would notice them snickering about something that may or may not have even had to do with the movie and everyone would be very upset and these these kids basically need to be sent off and re-educated because they acted like teenagers in a movie theater. So, uh, shout out to the Seattle Jewish Film Festival. It's coming up. There is actually going to be a documentary. Unfortunately, I forgot what it's called. There's going to be a documentary about where the where sort of the tagline is can the Holocaust be funny? And it's interviews mm-hmm. with... I think I've uh, heard of that, about that. With, yeah. you know, producers and comedians and directors about Holocaust jokes. Uh, mostly Jewish, I think some non-Jewish. Um, so that's... Th- can the Holocaust be funny is not... That's well, not a subtle I mean, it's, debate. It's, it's sort of a, that's it's, an ongoing It's a debate. controversial topic in the, in the world of comedy in general. Is Are there certain topics that just should be... Right, where are the limits? Off, well, like rape is an off-sided example. You know, uh, rape jokes. Probably to a lot of women, especially women who have been uh, sexually assaulted. Probably not very funny. But no. the thing about, about comedy in general that but a lot of comedians will tell you is that in order to really, you know, push the envelope in comedy, you, you can't be afraid not to go there and sometimes you have to go places that are in poor taste any any comic who tries to keep it clean and play it safe is probably not going to be all that funny and and a lot of the time that it kind of has the opposite effect you know the more you try not to swear the more you just want to tell (laughs) so dirty jokes and whatever but when uh given that i am not really a filmmaker so whatever Mm -hmm. i I think that there's a real there's a real trick to horror comedies as a subgenre where there's sort of a fine line you walk where you can't be too funny or else it's not scary anymore but you can't be too scary or else it's not funny anymore and the best way to use a horror comedy is to make the comic moments scary and to make the scary moments funny and that is something that get out really does absurdly well like there's a moment that is in the trailers that most people have seen where the protagonist meets, you know, another black guy who's at this weird gathering of white folks. And he's like, ah, oh, it's nice to see another brother there and puts out his fist for a pound. <laughs> and the guy grabs his hand, you know, like he doesn't understand what a fist pound is. And that that's an old joke, right? Like that's a joke that white people make to each other all the time <laughs> and have been for years Mm-hmm. When it happens in the movie, it is funny and also alarming. It is like at a really unsettling moment. And that's one of the scarier moments in the movie, I think, because it reinforces how alone he is in this group of people and that there's clearly something not right going on. Um, and that's what makes it a great horror comedy. That's a moment... Where, okay. where it's funny and you're supposed to laugh and also it tells you that there's bad stuff happening. Like. So, so, so back to what we were, we were, 
we discussing. were discussing. Yeah, the, the the thing that sort of got me thinking about this was an article that a friend shared on Facebook. It's an article that actually uh, is in in Vice, if you want to look for it. The author, his uh, her name is a little bit tricky <laughs> to pronounce. First name is Terry, T-A-R-I. The last name, I think it's Ngangura. It's N-G-A-N-G-U-R-A. How would you pronounce that? Ngangura. It sounds like maybe like African, an African type name or... I would assume... Like NG is kind of a... I'm never sure how to pronounce it. Is it Ungagura? I would assume I'm that sorry, the G I'm, is... I'm sorry, Terry, if you're listening. I would assume that that G is either soft or silent, so it would be like Terry... Terry? It's Terry, not Terry. Ungura. Anyway, the... Uh, that would the, be my The assumption. author of this article. <laughs> uh, she points out that she's, she's read a lot of think pieces, uh, zoning in on the fact that the true horror of Jordan Peele's film, Get Out, is white feminism. Okay, so she agrees with that. The, the idea is that, okay, spoiler alert, except not really a spoiler alert, the, the monsters in this horror movie are the white people, right? <laughs> From the black perspective. So, but the thing that, um, that, that, that stuck, uh, that, that kind of you know, got my hackles up a little bit is when she said, I'm allowed to laugh during Get Out because the awkward situations that the character had to extricate himself from are regular scenarios in my everyday life. So she's allowed. However, the white liberals I saw knee-slapping themselves into hysterical oblivion clearly missed the mark and seemingly, to her, saw the film as only a comedy and not a commentary on their actual faults. So the first thing I wonder is, well, how does she know just because the fact that they seem to be laughing hysterically, how does she know that they're not in on the joke? That's why does she make that assumption just from sitting there in the theater? I mean, how, do, how is she reading their mind and essentially trying to police their thoughts and decide what she thinks they ought to be thinking? Or how does she know why they're laughing? I, I don't quite. I don't quite get it. Is it because they're laughing at the wrong times or what? You've actually seen this movie where people, I assume, probably with a largely white audience as is the case in most movie theaters <laughs> uh, in these parts. but Well, I went to see it at, like, Lincoln Square in downtown Bellevue. Okay. Which, on the one hand, downtown Bellevue, known for being a pretty white place. Right. On the other hand, Bellevue's also really diverse. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get a look around. I don't <laughs> really count how many people of what race are in the room when I see a movie. So well, yeah, and as I, I'm sure that's that's not <laughs> unless they're unless they're of all of a of a, a different race than you yourself. Know, I think that's another thing a lot of white people sort of take for granted is we don't. I, th I think most non-white people, when they in in pretty much any you know get social gathering space, they kind of scan the room to kind of see, okay, what kind of group am I in? Is this a potentially hostile environment or you know, that's something that I think a lot of I think any person of color can relate to that but oh, white yeah. people unless you go to like another country or something where you're where you're really feeling self-conscious about your whiteness that's not something we necessarily think about every well, day you do and you don't I noticed it when I saw uh when I saw Borat in theaters I saw it in a very non-Jewish part of New York. Believe it or not, those places exist. Um, and so I was, I could reasonably assume, probably the only Jewish person in the theater. 
and a I, good example, actually. And though, I the anti-Semitic the anti jokes in Borat. <laughs> oh, yeah, I noticed that. And they are hysterically funny, but the, that, that's the thing. Does it does it bother you to see a bunch of Gentiles laughing when he's throwing the money at the cockroaches? You know, I'm going to say yes, and let me tell you why. Because i got to say, I was watching that, and I was watching it with a group of Jewish friends, and I just, like, bowled over laughing. And I, I haven't thought about that in a while, since it's been a while since that movie came out. But, yeah, I, I wonder, it's like, if, assuming people not realize that I'm not Jewish... Let me. <laughs> would they be offended that I'm laughing at that? Well, I wouldn't be offended at you laughing per se, because you know I'm one of the good ones. Oh yeah. Um, no, and in fact, my problem isn't with people finding Borat funny. <laughs> I. So there are a handful of movies like that where, like, one has the experience of like, I know what this person is doing, and I don't like it because I see the world, I think, in a different way than they do. Uh, And, of course, Sacha Baron Cohen is allowed to do that because he's Jewish himself. Right, so here's my problem with (laughs) Sacha Baron Cohen. No, this is like, I have a problem with Sacha Baron Cohen and Jew jokes, and that is uh, that a week after Borat came out, there were a number of incidences of non-Jewish students at McGill University throwing change at Jewish students, like throwing them at them, because, ha-ha, Borat, funny. And... That was in the news, and then there were copycats all over North America. Like oh, it, it became a thing. It was a it was like a trend for a for a hot. We can't minute. joke about anything stupid because there might be copycats. But yes. and it's, but it's also true. I mean, if that's the thing. A lot a lot of political uh, uh, arguments in favor of quote unquote. I love to say quote unquote political correctness is because it is. True, but, well, but here's the, the question thing. is, are the efforts to squash it worse than the actual problem? Here's the thing. In Borat, uh, the characters... in There are no Jewish characters in Borat. Not really. Right. There's Well, just that one a, couple, yeah. The, <laughs> the, the couple that the, 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 the right, they keep says, yeah. But Which what they're... A sweet old couple. What but, you yeah. see <laughs> is, you know, Borat and his buddy, who are parodies... Of, like, Eastern or Central European people who hate Jews. Mm -hmm. And the jokes are all coming from, are, like, them saying horrible things about Jews and that being funny. Whereas, so, like, in the context of Borat, the Jews are the monsters. And we're supposed to be laughing at the fact that the character of Borat thinks of Jews as monsters. Well, yeah, because he doesn't actually, I mean... I mean, I, I'm just going to go out on a limb and assume that most of our listeners or our listener has seen Borat and remembers the way that the the way the character, you know, see, I mean, obviously that the, supposedly the characters in this fictional or version of Kazakhstan or whatever, they 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 demonize Jews and hate Jews, but in a very kind of ridiculous and, and comical with the big effigy they have so, and they, they don't know any Jews they've never seen it. Jews to them are just sort of like almost like these mythical demons so imagine you know given that you haven't seen Get Out imagine if Get Out was shot entirely from the perspective of the white people mm-hmm. that's what that would be if Get Out were shot entirely from the perspective of the white people <laughs> with with the movie saying that the white people are right in what they're doing and like winking and trusting us to understand that that's wrong. Like that's what Borat does. Borat makes a lot of jokes about Jews, but it trusts the audience really deeply to understand 
why those jokes well, are funny. And the end result was a spike in hate crimes well, against Jews. The thing that I think Terry maybe doesn't quite get when she sees white people, you know, quote unquote, knee slapping, watching Get Out, is that we actually, white, because especially, you know, white people who consider ourselves, you know, who go out, who at least make an effort to not be overtly racist, you know, there, we, it creates a lot of awkwardness when we do try to, you know, yeah. in those rare, I mean, there's a lot of white well, they, people who consider themselves, you know, very, you know, progressive and not racist. And yet they actually meet a black person or a other person of color and, and they don't really know how to talk to them or how to, or how, you know, their efforts to be non-offensive end up being very awkward so, and, and borderline offensive. And we can, the thing is we can, we can see ourselves in that awkwardness. And I think that's what a lot of white people find funny is like, Oh yeah, that whole, like I'm going to call this black guy, you know, bro or whatever. That's man, that, that, those kind of lame efforts to kind of seem like you're kind of, you know, with, with, with the, you know, urban culture or whatever. That's, you know, we, 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 yeah, like, yep, that's, that's me. That's me trying to, trying to, be you know trying to seem cool to black people right so (laughs) (laughs) so here's the big difference i would draw between borat and get out is that borat is a movie that makes lots of jewish jokes that is specifically for an audience that knows why anti-semitism is or is not funny and when Mm -hmm. get out is a movie that actually plays really well i think with people who don't know that they're being racist because it does a really good job of hooking you in with its protagonist uh, by, you know, like I said, at the beginning of the movie, you probably see yourself as the Rose character, the girlfriend. But by the end of the movie, you've been totally sucked into the perspective of the black protagonist. And that's why it's really good. That's why it's worth seeing. It's worth seeing because it's actually the... It is a movie that really pulls you into the perspective of its main character in a way that ends up being surprising. Mm-hmm. Well, and I... And that's something the Borat doesn't do. I think what what really kind of, you know, for a person of color watching that movie, the find that to them it's it's funny. It's like Terry, the, the author of the, the Vice article, is saying, well, the, is that... Uh, that it's right, that it's it, that it's, that it's, it it's a, every day. yeah that it's a horror with you know that with satirical comedy to her I think it's kind of reversed when she watches it it's like a real horror movie that just so happens to have jokes yeah <laughs> I don't think white people are I mean they're not watching it and being terrified unless well, they be, can really but but unless they put themselves into the into the position of the of the character but at the same time it is it is more like. From a from a joke to scary ratio perspective, it is much more like The Evil Dead than it is like Tucker and Dale versus mm-hmm. Evil. Like I, my experience with it was I was tense the whole way through. Like there were parts of it that were, like I said, the plot was fairly predictable, but generally speaking, I was tense the whole time. Well, I think one thing and not laughing. I as think much as a, people for a person of color. Are, Seeing the white, I, I think, especially seeing white people laugh at something that to you seems un, terrifying, uh, and yeah, ra- t- terif- a terrifying example of racism. You know, there's a, a white. I think there's also a, a you know for a lot of people of color, they see they see a lot of examples of white people expressing 
outrage and objections and to people being brutalized or treated unfairly and, you know, really terrible acts of racism, but then they don't really do much about it. They sort of like, Oh yeah, I'm your friend. I'll I'm, I'm an ally, but then do they, they don't really necessarily put their money where their mouth is or like go and actually get in between, you know, people of color and the police when, when shit gets really real. And I think that's maybe the part that she really is bothered by is because she's seen plenty of examples of hypocritical white liberals who claim like, oh yeah, we're with you, we're behind you. But as soon as things get a little out of hand, they're like, okay, we're back to our suburbs. Yeah, you know, we we don't we're not really your friends. We're we just kind of pretending to make our ourselves feel better about this about you know basically to make you know pat yourself on the back for being unracist. But what are you really doing to battle racism? So Terry, if you're listening, I, I do get where you're coming from, and it is a legitimate. Oh, yeah observation the the thing is i wouldn't just assume that us white folks don't get that that we don't know that we can be hypocrites when it yeah. comes to that and by saying we i don't mean me i'm one of the good well, ones and don't and don't sell the movie short uh like i just said i was tense the whole way through but there's a moment i remember one moment in particular where the protagonist shakes hands with some random white person and his response is like, hey, I'm a big fan of Tiger Woods. And that's really funny. And like, that's just a really, it's a funny joke. Mm-hmm. In part because, yeah, that happens. And like, I can remember being in, sure. uh, being in like middle school and telling someone I was Jewish and their response being, I like bagels. Well, yeah, that's the whole like, it's phenomenon. Funny. It's of, funny now. Well, yeah, it's. You know, it's. I mean, they're basically saying, "Oh yeah, I, I." There's a black person that I that I like who's not really, right. who's who's kind of like an example of somebody who isn't exactly symbolic of African American culture. Let's just say, <laughs> I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say that Tiger isn't especially black, but he's definitely, um, let's just say, non-threatening <laughs> to uh, to <laughs> to uh, sensitive white people. Yeah. He's he's the kind of He's the kind of he's sort of like the almost like like O.J. Simpson in that sense. He's he's you know where you know being a being a being a celebrity and a sports hero kind of yeah, he's like kind of, kind of is a way Bill for Cosby yeah it kind of gives any it, of those other people famous... like that it kind of they can kind of shed their race to yeah. for, for because white people are like oh they're celebrities I want to you know they're they're cool whereas just the average anonymous black person they see walking down the street. They'll make an entirely different set of assumptions about it. Is it is a deep, sad irony that three of the most race-defying African Americans in American pop culture have been like O.J. Simpson, Bill Cosby, and Tiger Woods. That is that is bad luck. Well, and yeah, I just I haven't seen Get Out yet, but I have seen another film that won the Oscar for best documentary, O.J. Man in America, which I highly recommend if you really want a deep dive into it. it isn't just about the murder trial by the way it goes there's a the, the entire first episode all takes place in the 60s and 70s and you really get to learn all about how oj basically became oj and you know as somebody who grew up in the 80s and was kind of aware of oj simpson i mean he was really just like the the epitome of a of of a mega you know superstar back then, and I don't think there was anyone who was bigger than him and more revered and and worshipped as a as a sports icon than O.J. Simpson. And yet he's probably the least black 
black guy. I mean, and and I don't say that in a and I don't mean mean to be glib, but OJ really went out of his way to, to shed his blackness. He did not want to be known as a black athlete. He wasn't especially involved in, you know, quote unquote black issues. Like he he like he wanted to kind of be the opposite of the of the black power, black Panther, all hmm. that kind of stuff. Like he, he didn't want that image. He wanted to, he basically wanted to just be OJ. He wanted to be his, his own brand that was basically, you know, well, post-racial and well, it all, and to a large extent he achieved that. We'll have to talk more about race politics and movies and TV and stuff. Another time <laughs> it is, it is interesting to note that like there is basically only one black actor in Hollywood who can consistently get roles written for white people. And that's oh, yes. Will Smith. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Uh, yes. Great white, white people like Muhammad Ali, right? It's like Will Smith, <laughs> Will Smith has on occasion yeah. gotten roles yeah. that were written for white people. Mm-hmm. That's it. Well, yeah, no... he, Cause he can, he's an everyman, you know? Yeah. And then kind like, of a chameleon. He can play. You know, he, he's like, he's the, the blue eyed hero who just happens to not have blue eyes. The only, <laughs> the only other, sort of, uh, you know, major black celebrities who I can think of who really succeed at having major crossover appeal are like Kanye and Beyonce. And that's, and it's, and that's particularly interesting given how much Kanye has embraced his own sort of black power-ness. Well, he doesn't, um, you know, he, he doesn't sort of, fit into the stereotype of your of a of a of a rapper, right? Right. In terms of the way he well, like the, he thing, does, the he subject matter that he that he raps about, the way he you know, his fashion sense. He's he's very much his own guy, but he's he doesn't I, I think especially for for a white audience, he just happens to talk about stuff that is more universally relatable. Right. He also it's happens not all to about, be you know, where whereas like gangster rap is sort of like white people's way of sort of vicariously you know, getting an idea of what it's like in in the hood, you know, uh, you know, well, this <laughs> Kanye g- became a big deal, you know, rapping about, you know, dropping out of college. So, first of all, Kanye skeptics listening to this bite me. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the thing is, Kanye West is one of the only major people, you know, one of the only black celebrities to have crossover appeal because he's so he is a genius and he is... He is, it's true. He has so far... Like, he has overcompensated for the fact that he is African-American in a white world. <laughs> you know, he is such a genius and so great at what he does that he has been able to achieve real crossover appeal. Uh, the standards... In order for someone to do that, they have to hit a really high bar. And unfortunately, you know, that bar is real, real, real low for white celebrities. Uh, but like I said, that's another, that's a conversation for a whole other day. Um, yeah, a lot a lot of people who are or have been lauded as geniuses aren't half the genius that Kanye is. The problem with Kanye is he has the, is he, he has, he can, he has the, he has the, the poor tact to uh, refer to himself as a genius and go on and on about how wonderful he is, which. Ah, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, little... I think when you're a genius, yeah, you can do that. I mean, yeah. Okay. It's a little tacky, but the fact is it's true. I mean, the, the thing I just, you worry about it going to someone's head too much and it, 
taking away from their their creative powers. That's the thing I worry about is when somebody becomes too smitten with their own talent that they start to lose it. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that hasn't. I, I mean, know. I the the main thing I would worry about I worry about Kanye more lately is not him losing his his creative prowess, but more losing his mental, mental health. health. Yeah, the fact that he's been. I mean, I, I I hopefully he's better now, but he did you know have to do a stint yeah. in the in the mental hospital, and you know that's. Yeah, I, he's so, un, he's a man who takes on a lot and is under a lot of pressure to to and I, I sometimes well, that's life like, just get that and the thing is that can happen to anybody as a human being. Oh, and and sort of the corollary to what I was saying before, like blue scholars here in Seattle are as good a musical performance act as lots of national groups that are filled with white people, and yet they're not nearly as famous because they're a Seattle hip hop group. Like there's a, there's definitely, I feel like there's more sort of weird inherent race politics and racism in music, even than there is in movies mm. these days. And so, yeah, Kanye has had to go, he's had to go so far above and beyond in order to achieve that, like Michael Jackson level of cultural ubiquity. And it's taken a toll and I really hope he's okay. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, one thing I think that is really missing from the world today, at least in the in the media, whether it be in politics or entertainment, that I think a lot of people miss is humility. You know, everybody is always talking about how they're the greatest and whatever, and everything has to be, you know, a million yeah. and one percent awesome, and everybody seems to be so smitten with their own wonderfulness and <laughs> would you uh, would you say that about Kubrick? When I say that about Kubrick, what would it, what, that what that he's too impressed with himself? I mean, Kubrick, the Stanley Kubrick is no longer with us, but I don't right. remember him going on and on and on about you know what it, about his own genius so much. No, but was, that's how he fact, acted when he worked. He just well, yeah. I mean, that's the, how he was, you know, on the set. But I mean, in general, everyone seems it just in general in 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 our culture, everyone just seems so self assured of their own rightness and their own yeah well we're having a self-righteousness yeah, i just it's just it's just sort of a thought that i'm that, that I'm is not right now I, I you know everyone from donald trump you know i'm i'm the be- most or the least whatever person who who you'll ever meet that's i don't yeah, know yeah i was gonna say that's not that is not confined social to I, race well, culture and, or medium of performance well, in the case of trump you know every political the, performance. the thing is i mean you know with social media everyone kind of wants to be their own mini celebrity you know this i mean you can point to reality tv shows where people become famous just for being assholes and a house full of other assholes <laughs> without really having True. any particular talent everyone kind of wants to be you know, yeah, awesome. Whereas just being yourself and not, you know, broadcasting it to the entire world is, to a certain extent, considered being a loser in a lot of people's minds. Yeah, we are having a weird cultural moment with that. Um, on that note, shall we transition to our second topic? Oh, yes. If How much time? Where are we at, Chris? We are at 35 minutes. 35 minutes. So, Ben would like to discuss something wilder. I'm... Sorry, I can't. I can't uh, myself. So you know, we've had um, we, we've gone. We've we've got a. There's a lot of people who are very concerned that the world is being taken over by an increasingly bleach blonde form of populism. That's that's that started with with Brexit. Although I guess is 
Boris Johnson is a, is a natural blonde, isn't he? With Brexit. There definitely, but but Donald Trump so, not so much. And then and now you know the the you know with the populist wave that took over the United States with Donald Trump that's that's definitely not the natural. His hair definitely doesn't come out of his head that color, assuming it comes out of his head at all. Uh, now with uh, this guy Gewert, his name uh, Wilder, Gert Wilders, Gert Wilder, who was running uh, for something or other in Parliament and right. in, well, in, in, in the Netherlands, and of course. Uh, uh, Marine Le Pen, who's uh, running for uh, president of France, also not a natural blonde. Sorry. So I've been spending a lot of time researching European politics and European political parties lately because <laughs> that's the kind of person I am. Uh, we know, Ben. You, you do. Yeah. That's true. Uh, <laughs> and I, I'll say this, this is very, you know, a personal moment. I, I was looking because sometimes... As as a sort of self-described moderate or progressive libertarian, I find that sometimes I feel like I'm out in the wilderness, right? Like there aren't, you know, whether it's, you know, sort of Democrats aren't libertarian enough for me. And a lot of libertarians are sort of weirdly smitten with Trump these days. Uh, and it can feel very lonely being someone <laughs> who's uh, who's sort of socially... Who is socially liberal, fiscally moderate, <laughs> conservative, you know, trying to trying to feel out where are there, you know, are there people like me out there? And I discovered that the answer is a resounding yes. And that we just happen to live in like one of the only countries in the world in which there is no centrist libertarian leaning political party that has, you know, major representation. You know, the Libertarian Party in the United States exists and is a great place for people like that, but it does not currently have representation in government anywhere except for two states. Um, so I was looking into this and what I'm finding... So in um, let's talk about the Dutch election in a nutshell. So in the Netherlands, as in most parliamentary systems, when you go to vote... You know, when you're voting for a parliamentarian, the equivalent of your congressman or your senators, right? you don't vote for the individual who is running to represent you. You vote for a party. Right. And they, they have, they have like, districts, right? Uh, they're, Geographical, like, zones? They have like both. Members of parliament? Every, every European country is different. Some of them will have, like, one you know, legislative body right. that is the whole country and everyone votes on a well, party. Well, how does it work in the Others will have districts. What's the deal with this election in the Netherlands? How do they vote there? That, I think, this particular body that just got elected was everyone in the country voting for political parties and every political party that gets past 0.67% or something okay. gets at least one. The rest are, are proportional. So everyone votes for their, their party preference and then whoever gets... Right. The so most they they how do they decide who the actual individuals are that end up in parliament? So the parties create what they call a list. Okay. And the list just lists in order. The head of the party is number one. The oh, deputy okay. head is number two. So oh, okay. so they decide who their leaders are. Exactly. So so when you vote for the party, you get like a slate of of people. Exactly. Basically. You get the slate, and if they win, if they get enough of a percentage, you know, if if they get twenty percent of the vote, they get twenty percent of the seats. Hmm. Okay. If, you know, and, you know, if you're, if you're number one on the list and your party is 
going to be moderately successful, you know you're in. But if you're number 10 on the list, maybe you should be a little worried. You see, now you just educated me. I did not know that it worked that way. I always figured it was like they had gerrymandered districts like we do. Oh, no. No. Uh, so, um, so the big concern, the two big people battling it out, uh, the two leaders of their respective parties who were seen as the most likely... Uh, the the leaders of parties that were the most likely to win the most votes were the current prime minister Mark Rutte of the VVD party. Okay, and uh, Gert Wilders of the ironically named Party of Freedom. <laughs> Imagine, if you will, all of the worst stereotypes that people have about Trump voters. <laughs> In the United States. I'm not even talking about necessarily the actual people. I'm talking about the stereotypes. Right, right. Yeah. The stereotypes of Trump voters. Trump! Deal with it! That kind of thing? Yeah. <laughs> okay. That was my that was my stereotype of a of a Trump voter. That is stereotype more... Stereotype of a stereotype. That is more or less the party of freedom <laughs> okay. in the Netherlands. So here's the deal with uh, European politics. Uh -huh. So within the United States, you know, we've got the Republicans who are right wing and their color is red <laughs> and the Democrats who are left wing and their color is blue. And then if you're paying attention, the libertarians who are neither of those who are libertarian, <laughs> whose color is yellow and the Green Party who are more left wing than the Democrats, and their uh -huh. color is green. In the rest of the world, uh, there are sort of more columns of parties and more divisions. And the way it has panned out, first of all, everywhere but the United States, blue is conservative and red is liberal mm -hmm. because red is associated with socialism because of course it is. So <laughs> already fascinating. Uh, so in most of the rest of the world, you've got the sort of the red parties that are socialist or communist <laughs> or, or, or maybe just center left. You've got the blue parties that are conservative, anywhere from center-right to far-right wing. Yellow parties are centrist to libertarian in many contexts. Interesting. So they tend to be, you know, pro-choice, uh, pro-tax cuts, pro-free trade, pro-personal oh, liberties. Okay. You know, they and American libertarians tend to have the same goals but in the rest of the world, they don't call them libertarians. <laughs> they call them liberals. Hmm. Okay. Like, you have the socialists who believe in government-controlled markets. You have the conservatives who believe in traditional values. And the liberals who believe in liberalizing all things. Not just liberalizing, you know, society legally via support for gay <laughs> marriage, support for weed legalization but also liberalizing the economy by getting the government out of the way of entrepreneurs. Oh, all right. So liberal in most of the world means basically libertarian, but, you know, liberal parties, in big air quotes, tend to be more moderate oh. than the U.S. Libertarian Party. Okay. You know, similar philosophy, but much more moderate short-term goals. Hmm. Um so liberal is what we used to refer to as classical liberal. Right, the classical liberals. Which, so, and classical liberal meaning libertarian. And now, and now there is a new movement in Europe, 
And this is the the right wing, the ultra right wing nationalist populist movement. Uh -oh. I don't even know if it's fair to call them right wing. Like what else would you call it? Well, they're nas <laughs> they're nationalist populists. They believe in that sounds right wing. They believe me. in both government controlled economy and government controlled life day to day. You know they are. You know, they they believe that the government can reach in there and create jobs and get those working poor back to work. Ooh, that sounds like what was it called? The um, there was some kind of party in Germany that used to. Yeah, like, there have may that have been of... that. Um, well, this is the, you know, libertarians and right wing people of various sorts always love to point out that one of the words in Nazi is socialism, right? <laughs> that the National Socialist well, Party. sure. And they, they <laughs> say this in a, as a way to smear socialism. Yeah, yeah. And so their motives are, uh, but they're also not wrong. Like, s sort of socialist well, sure. economic policies are pretty I mean, it's fundamental an, it's to nationalism. It's description of, I mean, it was national nationalized... Right. You know, so, economy and you know, it's, it's like the Nazis wanted the government in your business and your bedroom. Right. Or, so or when, another way of describing yeah. Nazism is it's a it's a it's the combination of absolute government power with corporate power. Yep. So. Right. So when a political leader says to you at a rally, you know, I want to put you back to work. I want us to return to our traditional values. You know what? Those those non-you people who have taken all those poor jobs, we're going to kick them out so you get all their jobs. Mm -hmm. That's not really right or left-wing. That's just national populism, which is sort of the natural opposite and enemy of libertarianism. Mm -hmm. And that is the big new thing, right? That is the group of people. And I'm not, you know, people who aren't that did vote for Trump. This is when you know we start mean? trying to sell people on libertarianism, right? Right. Not, and I guess sell is the wrong word, but sort of like, because I, I, yeah. we should, we'll save this for our next podcast. But, you know, Ben and I are, you know, definitely, cons the thing that libertarian these days, it's a lot of, there's a lot of people who use that word and it's become sort of the like liberal and that it's, you know, it, it has a certain connotations to it that are, you know, it, it's, it, it isn't always, you know, what you yeah. think it means. Like. You know, there's there's a lot of, st I mean, just like we have stereotypes of Trump voters and Hillary voters, there's definitely the stereotypes of libertarians and basically, you know, like anything goes, everything should be legal, everything from drugs to child pornography to, you know, having as many guns as you want and all that kind of thing. But we'll we'll get into that later. We'll get into that it's like, time. <laughs> uh, I think we should all have guns. Anyway, um. So just one of the things that I have found really interesting is, you know, nationalist populism has really been on the upswing in, in the U.S., in Europe. And it's a big thing. Their official color in the EU parliament is mm -hmm. black. Okay. I think that's interesting that they've chosen black <laughs> as their color. Um, surprised they didn't take white. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> They, you know, like I said, they're ha ha. at their at their worst, at their worst, they support, you know, very racist and Islamophobic policies. And they support <laughs> effectively turning European democracies into tiny totalitarian fiefdoms at their best, question mark. What they're trying to sell to people is the economy tanked your job. 
we can we're gonna both spend money on bringing your jobs back like socialists do and we're going to kick out the immigrants and we're going to do all these things to make to just bring life back to some sort of ideal so there are people voting for them who aren't that sounds like a lot of work yeah it does uh well right let's see how they're doing um so the first big success for national populist groups was uh was brexit and yeah so the first big <laughs> success for these national populist groups was brexit and the argument there was uh, was that britain needs sovereignty from the eu in order to control itself and they were able to convince a majority of british voters that that was true and it scared the bejesus out of sort of globalists and internationalists and people right. who believe that we're all better off if we trade with each other. Uh, the second big victory was Trump, who used these national populist tendencies to bring new voters into the Republican Party and swing the election. Right. This was the big new test. Gert Wilders is the leader of a populist nationalist political party. The Prime Minister, Mark Rutte, is the leader of what is effectively a moderate libertarian political party uh, who had joined with the socialists in a coalition government. And a handful of really interesting things happened. What happened, Ben? So, first of all, good news! Rutte won! <laughs> I'm waiting with bated breath. What happened? <laughs> uh... Mark Rutte's VVD party won the most so seats. They're, so they're not getting something wilder? No, they're not getting something wilder. Ugh, okay. And basically every other political party in the Netherlands has said that there is no circumstance in which they would invite Gert Wilder's Party of Freedom to join them in a coalition. So we're pretty much guaranteed that the Netherlands will not be taken over oh. by anti-immigrant, anti-Islam, pro-Russia... Well, I'm okay, I'm okay with that. What's going to happen in France, though? So here's so here's what's interesting. So what's interesting is not just who's the big the big winner. Like Valders and his party are still going to have more seats than they have in the past than they have had recently. Right. Um, but what's going to happen in France? So well, let's see. Are we going to look crazy? Like <laughs> so, Marine Le Pen, Marine Le Pen's National Front party in France is part of the same, uh, is part of the same, you know, Union of Europe for Freedom, right. whatever group. Anti EU, anti immigrant, right? Yeah, they're part of the same. They have the they they are the same party in the European Parliament as Wilders. Are they going to win? No. Yeah. Okay. So you don't think you think because the thing the problem they had in in France was their if. mainstream guy went down in some sort of nepotism scandal, right? Right. So here's the thing: if Filon manages to pull out a second place showing, Filon is the candidate of the center left, currently ruling party, the party of Francois Hollande. All right. Uh, if Filon, so the way the French presidential election works is they have basically a giant open primary. Right. Where you then, vote you vote for any one of a dozen candidates. And then they have a runoff, right? Right. And the two who got the most votes face off in a runoff. Right. Right now, Marine Le Pen, the leader of the National Front Party and daughter of a man who <laughs> served time in jail for being a Nazi sympathizer slash Holocaust denier. He sounds uh, chill. Yeah. Marine Le Pen Didn't is, she kick her own dad out of the party? Like, didn't she? 
He actually represents the National Front in the European Parliament, representing uh, their region of southern France. Huh, mm-hmm. So he's still in. But um, she, she like did something to. She's the kick leader, out, right? Okay, right. The torch has been passed. Mm-hmm. You know, Jean Marie Le Pen, the father, was very controversial. One could say um, he still is, isn't he? Oh yeah, he still is. <laughs> and uh, Marine, his daughter, is sort of the softer image of French fascism. Oh. Um, she is currently polling in the lead of okay. all of the French presidential yeah, that's candidates. The scary part. She is currently polling in the lead. But she's not going to win. Above 20%. Right. But that's in large part because the rest of France hasn't really coalesced, you know? Okay. They've got right-wing people, left-wing people, moderate people, all supporting different people. So you think uh, once they they whittle down the field that all the non-Le Pen voters will settle... On the on the non Le Pen choice, and that will. So there are two possible. Where have we heard that before? <laughs> there, right. Well, here's the thing: there are two possible. There are two possible scenarios. Uh, scenario one is that Francois Fillon, I think it's Francois, whatever Fillon, uh, comes back from behind, beats his current scandal issue, and gets second place to Le Pen, <laughs> and ends up in the runoff. And I think if it if it's a head to head between, you know nationalist populist Marine Le Pen and left-wing pseudo-socialist Filon, uh-huh. who is filled with personal scandals right now. Right. Let's see, an elder statesman with a lot of personal scandals mm. associated with his name. Oh, shit. Uh, All right, I don't want to know anymore. On the other hand, Emmanuel Macron is a former socialist, now centrist, who has been supported by center-right, center-left, and center-libertarian kinds of people, he actually is the one who's currently in second place. And if he wins, he will probably trounce Le Pen. Okay, so you think Le Pen's going down regardless? I think Le Pen is going down because I think think Emmanuel Macron is going to be the next president of France. Okay. No, saying this here. <laughs> I think Emmanuel Macron. On, you say this on the uh, on the on the sixteenth of March, twenty sixteen. All right. I think Emmanuel Macron. You, and so, I mean, I mean, the big the big fear was that if why Vildes won in, in in the Netherlands, it would be a on the heels of Brexit, and then and then France would go down, and then eventually Germany, and the European Union would become kaput, and we'd have a bulk a rebalkanization of Europe, where you know they you know throw up walls and border controls, and the euro goes. Away in. So here's what's really interesting to me is it's not like the populist nationalists aren't going down without a fight and they mm-hmm. are gaining seats. <laughs> They're gaining power everywhere. Uh-huh. But they are still losing. <laughs> what's interesting is who's the big loser in all of this? It's not the other right wing groups. It's not the centrist groups or the libertarians. The people who are losing the most votes to the populist nationalists are the socialists. Mm-hmm. The socialists in the Netherlands lost big time in this election. You know, right now, the governing coalition in the Netherlands is the VVD, who are sort of the center-right, pseudo-libertarian party, right. in coalition with the center-left Democratic Socialist Party. Okay. So the two of them have been running the Netherlands together. That will not be the case in the next government. It will probably be the libertarian-ish VVD uh-huh. and the 
center right right wing Christian Democrat party mm, because okay. that's who's gained more seats. That's or, the party of uh, Merkel, right in Germany. Uh, yeah, and that's and they also you know they have one in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so probably the nether the government of the Netherlands, even though Wilders will not have even though Wilders lost, Baruch Hashem, uh, even though Wilders lost. The government will still, the next government in the Netherlands will probably still be more right wing. And if you look at France, same deal. The person with the best chance to beat uh, Le Pen <laughs> is not the socialist candidate who, you know, has totally screwed himself. Uh, <laughs> it's the center libertarian ish candidate, Emmanuel Macron. Mm, all right. I think this is going to be a pattern that we're going to see. We're going to see that the that the parties and the politicians that are best equipped to fight these nationalist populists are going to be politicians and parties who say, gay marriage, go for it. Weed, smoke a bowl. <laughs> Budget, we have to cut it anyway. Okay. Like, it's going to be well, centrist, libertarian-leaning parties and politicians who end up being the, the big competitors with these populist nationalists. You know, there, there's a lot of talk about, you know, okay. if Bernie Sanders had been the Democratic nominee, would he have beaten Donald Trump? I think probably yes. Well, you right. heard it here, here. You heard it here, folks. You heard it here first, folks. Or maybe you didn't. Maybe you heard it somewhere else. And now we're just repeating things you've heard somewhere else. Well, but you're predicting it. You're saying. <laughs> but uh one of the other interesting things is you know a lot of that would have to do with just the very specific image of Hillary Clinton but in general <laughs> would a socialist leaning left wing populist be the right person to battle a mm. right wing populist and the evidence we're seeing from Europe right now is maybe not maybe the person best equipped to fight a right wing populist <laughs> is a libertarian well that seems like the opposite of what they're voting for. But I, I remember back doing, I mean, the, it's true that there was a lot of overlap of interest between Sanders and, and, uh, and Trump. And, it's, it's, yep. it's, uh, you know, people, a lot of people who are populist, they're not necessarily that focused on the specifics of the economics. They just, I mean, to them, it's a lot of pocketbook issues. So, well, and for some of them, the immigration stuff and the economics go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. That sort of socialist-ish economics and anti-immigrant xenophobia end up sort of getting lumped hmm. together. Yeah, and two people both sort of attempting to acquire <laughs> both sides of that one group are not going to be as successful facing each other directly as someone who really does represent a different philosophy. Well, folks, on that positive note, I think we better start to wrap this up. What do you think? Is yeah. the world going to go? <laughs> are we going full Nazi or is are the libertarians going to appeal to the better angels of our nature? Are <laughs> the grown-up in all of us or the or the screaming toddler in all of us? We'll see when What's the French election be? happens. All right. Well, vive la France. It's good luck, Macron. Via la France, I Good luck say. and march party. <laughs> Save us, please. Liberté, fraternity. Egalité. Egalité. Uh, all right. Well, this has been Ben Phelps. <laughs> and I'm Lelius Rose. And this is Precious Snowflakes. We are very precious. We are.